Welcome everyone, I'm Sarah Dillard, one of Mizna's program assistants, and you're listening to Mizna Stream. Mizna is a forum for Arab American film, literature, and art based in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find us online at mizna.org as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In June 2016, Rawi, the Radius of Arab American Writers, and Mizna joined forces for the second time to host the Rawi and Mizna Lit Gathering in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Rawi is a not-for-profit literary organization dedicated to supporting and disseminating creative writing and scholarly writing by Arab Americans. In their work, Rawi seeks to represent a progressive voice in the American community and a voice for justice in the U.S. and abroad. They seek to promote the building of coalitions and collaborate with others around issues of social justice. In this episode, you'll hear audio from an event with Jennifer Zainab McCarney, Adam Hamzi, and Lauren Camp. This audio was recorded live on June 18th, 2016 at Open Book. Enjoy the show and thanks for listening. We now have a reading by Jennifer Zainab McKinney. I am in awe of all of you. These were amazing. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much to Mizna and Rawi for giving me the opportunity to share my work with you guys today. Um, I'm Jennifer Zainab McConney, and so I'm going to be reading you a short story that I wrote that was first published in Gulfstream Literary Magazine, issue 14, last fall, called We Will Tell Our Children. The first word was we. Sam noticed it when she scrubbed her chin with cleanser. She'd overslept, the first time she'd slept late, or almost at all, in months. The two letters were tucked into the space between her jawbone and her ear. The chemicals inflamed the letters, reddening the skin where it was raised, as though the word we had been branded into her neck. What the fuck? Aunt Sam! It was Nasir's whistle-high voice from the kitchen. Can I have more cereal? Hang on a sec. Sam tilted her head to the right, tugging at her ear and her cheek to see the letters better. Ink? Sharpie? The letters were written in black, and her skin was throbbing as though she'd gotten a tattoo in her sleep. They looked handwritten, tilted and curved as from a woman's hand. She rubbed the letters with her finger, but they didn't come off. She scratched at them, skin sloughed off into the sink. Still, the letters remained. Pinpricks of blood emerged from her shorn capillaries. Aunt Sam, I'm hungry! Sam called, hold your horses. She tugged open the medicine cabinet and hunted for her concealer behind the neat rows of spare toothbrushes and floss. When she came out, Nasir was on the counter, straining to open the cabinet. She lifted him up and set him on the floor. I told you I'd be out in a minute, she said. I got tired of watching TV, Nasir whined. I wanted another bowl. Watching TV? Sam glanced at the television. More dirty faces, tense cities, water lines crammed with children Nasir's age and younger. She poured Nasir a bowl of cereal and slid it across the table and clicked the television off. You're too young to be watching that refugee stuff, she said. Didn't Mama tell you the news is for grown-ups? What were you doing in there anyway? Nasir shoveled cereal into his mouth and gulped sugared milk down his throat. Putting my face on. Nasir giggled. What? You know, putting my makeup on. Nasir laughed again, pointing at her. You're silly, he said. Sam rolled her eyes and felt her neck again for the letters. She could still feel the bumps. She placed her forefinger on the wells of the W, the shelves of the E, and she walked to the phone. Who are you calling, Nasir asked. Someone doesn't ask so many questions, Sam said. It rang three times before Farah picked it up. Sam, is everything okay? The sound of traffic swelled to fill the spaces between words. 
Is Nasir all right? He's fine, Sam said, just double-checking what time you wanted him back this morning. Oh, the traffic dulled. Sam could hear voices on the other end. Whenever, Ferris said, I trust you. Sam laughed. I don't know if that's such a good idea. He's climbing the walls. I think he gave me a tattoo last night. Farrah laughed, an odd sound where she inhaled sharply between her teeth and wheezed air out. Samira, please, she said. You're the most responsible person I know. So how was your trip? Exhausting, Farrah said, but way worth it. The footage is amazing. I think the translators are the most worn out, though. Not more than you, I'm sure. Sam glanced back at Nasir, who was pressing all the buttons on the remote. Cut it out. The cord pulled tight, too short. Listen, I gotta go, Sam said. I'll be over later this morning and drop him off. I have to work this afternoon. On Saturday? Sam didn't respond. She wound the cord between her fingers. Nasir turned his back and picked up the remote again, hunching his shoulders so Sam couldn't see. Thanks for doing this for me, Farrah said. This kind of opportunity doesn't come around all the time, you know, and with our family there... I know, Sam said. I know, but we haven't spoken to them in years, Farrah. Mom and Baba came to the States before we were even born. I don't know why you... Because I have to, Farrah said. I have to, because Syria is a part of us. And now I have to go. And Sam, all this work, these long hours, are you feeling all right? Are you sleeping? Yeah, Sam said. A lock of hair slumped over her eyes. The ends pricked her dry waterline, and she brushed them away. I'm sleeping fine. You promise me, Sam, Farrah said. You promise me that if that changes, you go see Dr. Hamsa, all right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, see you in a few hours. The dial tone thrummed in Sam's ear, and she hung up the phone. Nasir turned and stared at her with the remote in his hand, his eyes dear white. Did you write on me? Sam asked. Nasir dropped the remote and erupted in a belly laugh, clutching his sides, his whole face full of teeth and tonsils. You're silly, he choked out. You're silly. Damon was waiting in the lobby with his, arm cro with his arms crossed when Sam got to work. You're late, he said. I had to drop my nephew off, Sam said. We're shipping today, Damon said. I know, I know. You're never late, Damon said. He studied her, tilting his head. You always get in at 25 of. Sharp. I know, Sam said. Every day. I know, but today's Saturday. What's that on your neck? Sam touched her jaw, concealer smudged on her fingernails. My nephew wrote we on my neck last night, she said. It's nothing. Damon pulled his head back and lifted his brows. You let him write on you? I didn't let him, Sam said. He just did it. I was sleeping. You think I want a six-year-old writing on me? Was it pen? Sharpie, I think. Shit. Damon stroked the black hair on the tops of his arms, suppressing his laughter. What color? Black, Sam said. Could be worse, I guess. We, huh? Damon scratched his thigh. We what? I don't know, Sam said. Just we. She rubbed her neck again. It won't come out, either. Damon smirked and tugged at his jaw. Use some rubbing alcohol. Should come right out. Rubbing alcohol? Yeah, my kid is always drawing on the walls. It's the only thing that'll get it out. If that doesn't work, bleach might do the trick. Bleach? Won't that burn? Well, don't do it then. Damon walked away, waving his hand behind him. It'll fade eventually. But it didn't. The next word was will. It came a few days after we. Then the words came more quickly twining down Sam's throat and into her nightgown. Tell our children. It startled her so much that she ripped open the medicine cabinet and her spare toothbrushes went tumbling into the toilet. She had to throw them all away. Maybe I'm sleepwalking, she thought. Then, we will tell our children what? Sam threw out every permanent marker in the house after Will appeared. 
After tell, she tossed every pen she owned into the dumpster. The next day, she groaned when she couldn't write out checks for water and electricity. She scrubbed herself with bleach and salt, but the words still wouldn't come off. She was raw. She used a pumice stone to rub the skin off down to the pink layer, dots of blood appearing on a grid until the dyed skin had crumbled off into the sink. When she was done, it throbbed. Sam put two four-inch bandages over her chest and neck and went to bed, in pain but glad to be free of the words. When she awoke, we will tell our children had appeared out of her sinew and blood and bone. She was bleeding someone else's words. She wore turtlenecks. She fished Dr. Hamza's card out of her wallet. She stood in front of the sink and thought about calling human resources. Maybe I have a sleep disorder, she thought. Maybe someone at work is writing on me with invisible ink. Sam rubbed her raw neck. Isn't invisible ink supposed to be invisible, she said. The next words to write themselves were, the water tastes different here. They appeared on Sam's thigh one night while she slept. She grumbled and lost sleep, but the words weren't hard to hide. We will tell our children still had yet to fade, and the concealer always rubbed off before closing, so Sam wound a scarf around her throat. As she sat in her office that day, she ran her fingers over her thigh. She could feel the raised lettering of the water taste different here through the cloth of her pant leg. It tingled. Two weeks later, the first line of Arabic appeared on Sam's face. There was no mistaking it, even in the mirror. Sam sat on the rim of the tub in her bathrobe, clutching her toothbrush but not wetting it, holding it like a weapon. It was 8.20. Every few minutes she moved from the tub to the mirror, surveying the bridge of her nose and her cheekbones, whispering to herself, What the fuck does it mean? I haven't read Arabic since I was 10. Pharaoh, where are you when I need you? She pulled Dr. Hamza's card from the pocket of her robe. By the time Sam pulled on her paper gown, the lines had multiplied. Arabic cursive flowed down the backs of her knees, in the crooks of her elbows, and around her ankles like jewelry. Dr. Hamza barreled in from another appointment, his palms still sticky with hand cleanser, 25 minutes after Sam's scheduled appointment time. Samira, he boomed with a smile and open palms. Assalamu alaikum. Sam shook his hand, unsteady, dry-mouthed. I haven't seen your parents in ages. Dr. Hamza clutched her hand in both of his, nodding his head like a Muscovy duck as he spoke. May their health never fail, inshallah. Have they visited the family in Syria lately? Have they been back to Hama? Not lately, Sam said. And your sister, Farah, Dr. Hamza said. How is she? Traveling through Europe, I heard. Sam averted her eyes. The Middle East, actually, interviewing civilians and refugees. Dr. Hamza gaped, touching his palm to his chest. In Syria? Jordan, mostly, Sam said picking at the letters on her thigh through her jeans. Jordan in Lebanon, she's filming a documentary. Dr. Hamza shook his head. A terrible situation, he said. So difficult for everyone. You must have been terrified for her. She's been gone four or five weeks, no? More like six, I think, Sam said. I had her son with me about half of it. She scratched her neck. Dr. Hamza tilted his head to one side, trying to see, still sticking out his chin. Is that a bruise on your cheek, he asked. No, Sam said, that's what I came to talk to you about. She wiped away the thin layer of concealer with the pad of her thumb. Dr. Hamsa pulled up a stool and gripped her chin, turning her cheek. Do you know what this says? He asked. I was hoping you'd be able to tell me. Dr. Hamsa angled Sam's face up toward the overhead fluorescent light. It says, I love you, he said. Excuse me? Dr. Hamsa narrowed his eyes. It looks like a child's handwriting, he said. And this one, he picked up her hand, peering at a new phrase that had risen up out of her pores as she slept. This one says, we arrived at dawn, but Baba was already dead. And this, he pulled her hair taut against her scalp, revealing new letters at her hairline that she hadn't yet noticed. It reads, 
I carry Syria in my heart. Sam lowered her voice, the walls of her throat raw and close. Why is it on my face? It looks handwritten, Dr. Hamza said. But I didn't write it, Sam said. Dr. Hamza said someone did. He pushed his stool back and studied her. Someone who wanted to be heard. But who are these people? Sam scratched again at the backs of her hands and at the water tastes different here. Why are there words on my body? Why do they talk about losing everything, fleeing in the night, and in the, the next line write the words of Sufi poets? Maybe it gives them comfort, Dr. Hamza said. Sam curled her fingers into a fist. And what about me, she said. She pointed at her neck, drawing her thumb along the first set of words. What are we supposed to tell our children? I don't know, Dr. Hamza said. About the kindness of others, why parents left their homes, the names of those who were lost. I don't understand, Sam said. These unborn children, what, what do they need to know? Dr. Hamza lowered his eyes. Perhaps, he said, that it happened. Sam arrived at work the next day at 9.35. Ten pounds of concealer wouldn't have covered the crisscrossing highways of English and Arabic that marred her cheeks and forehead now. They were branded into her, burned into her bone. You're late, Sam, Damon said, crossing his arms. And what the hell is on your face? It doesn't say anything bad, Sam insisted. This one says, I love you all. They're face tattoos, Sam, Damon said. In Arabic, do you think that looks good to clients? Between that and your name, they'll think you're a terrorist. Sam had cut her hair short three years ago, trimmed her eyebrows every week, avoided contouring her cheekbones with bronzer. She had developed an American, adopted an American nickname, avoided telling coworkers the full version. She'd refused to learn Arabic when Farah started taking classes. She'd argued when Farah chose to name her son Nasir. Sam looked down at the back of her left hand, at the delicate print branded there. They think I am a terrorist. She said, I'm not a terrorist. I don't care what you are, Damon said. I need you to leave now. It took about a month before the words began to overlap each other. Arabic layered on English, layered on French, layered on Arabic. Soon there was not a limb that was left blank. There were words on Sam's cheeks, her scalp, the fleshy pads of her palms, the soles of her feet. The words appeared beneath her kneecaps, on her fingernails, across her shoulder blades. They bent themselves over the bridge of her nose and over her lips. They entered her mouth, rocketing around the cavern of her palate and dyed her tongue. Her mouth went numb. She called Farah but couldn't get a full sentence out. Her tongue was so devoid of feeling. Don't go anywhere, Sam, Farah said. I'm coming over. I'll be there as quick as I can. I'll take the Ben Franklin Bridge into the city. Don't go anywhere. But Sam called 911. They took her in an ambulance but didn't put the sirens on. Philadelphia traffic was too thick to go anywhere fast. The paramedic stabbed her with rubbing alcohol. Sam tried to wave them away, but they kept rubbing. Nothing faded, and they scratched their heads. It's on her eyelids, one of them said. Shit. The other peered over her, took a flashlight from his open kit. It's on the inside of the eyelids, too, the underside. She could go blind, the first one said. Something inside of Sam began to crack apart. She lifted her palms. She read the words on her right hand, fighting her own thick tongue. And so our spirits are a wine and our bodies a vine. She rolled her head to the side and locked eyes with one of the paramedics, the balding one. Ibn al-Farid, she said. Why doesn't anyone read his poems anymore? She lifted her palms again. The words were gone. Sam bolted up on the gurney. She rubbed her hand across her brow and flattened her palm against her nightgown. 
When she lifted it again, it was still clean. And then she understood. Sam pulled the IV from her arm and lurched off the gurney. Stop, she cried. Stop, stop. She burst out of the back of the ambulance and onto the parkway. It was dark and the flags were waving up and down the street. Horns shrieked. Sam jogged down the center median, tearing at her clothes, reading lines off her chest and arms. They build and destroy, she shouted into the window of a passing car. She waved like a madman to a child across the street. I carry Syria in my heart. The words vanished. They've gone to the garden without me, she cried, ripping her nightgown from her body. She nearly tripped over its crumpled mass. She left it in the middle of the street, the arches of her feet curving like sabers in the moonlight. She wove a line between the cars, arrowing down the parkway toward the Philadelphia Museum of Art. There must have been hundreds of horns, dozens of sirens. I was born in Damashk, Sam shouted to a woman stopped at a light. She grasped the bottom of the rear driver's side window. As the woman screamed and raised it, Sam exclaimed to the bewildered child in the rear car seat, I love you, I love you, I love you all. From far away, Sam heard someone calling her name. It was a familiar voice punctuated by whistling shouts and sharp inhalations, but she didn't stop. With each lurching step, the words continued to disappear. First, Sam's left thigh was clean, then the tops of her feet, then her chest and elbows. She couldn't see her own face, so she tried to remember what was written on her forehead. Raya was shot today, shot in the street. She serenaded a passing jogger. The water tastes different here. To the streetlights, she beat her breast and cried out, We arrived at dawn, but Baba was already dead. Finally, when Sam was out of words, she stopped and searched for her reflection in car windows. The only words remaining were the first ones that had arrived, wrapping themselves from her jawbone to her clavicle. We will tell our children, she cried. She ran again, faster, careening down the parkway. She clutched her own ribcage, fighting her nakedness and the cold. We will tell our children. She stopped again and peered into another window, but the words were still there. She tore at her hair and rubbed her skin, the friction charging her with heat. Then she used her fingernails, tearing at her flesh. The sirens followed her down the damp street. The paramedics found her close to three o'clock in the morning. Sam was under an overpass, naked, rocking herself back and forth on the curb. She was whispering, unable to remove those last five words. We will tell our children. We will tell our children. We will tell our children. Thank you. All right, y'all. My name is Adam Hamzi. Um, I'm going to read some poems for y'all. Uh, I'm from Austin, Texas. Um, so I submitted like a bunch of poems to read here, and pretty much they revolve around like a certain theme that I wanted to inform y'all before I started. Um, so as an Arab in the United States, and especially an Arab Muslim, there's like this dynamic. So we're not safe here in this country because of Islamophobia, anti-Arab sentiment, all these buzzwords that we've been talking about. Um, and we face like a lot of violence because of those things. And that's something I experienced growing up as like a middle schooler, high school, like 2007, 2013, that era. Um, and then for a lot of the same reasons that we face those things here, we also can't return back to a lot of where we come from, um, whether it's anywhere in the Sham, like Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, et cetera, because of present danger over there as well. So we're kind of caught between these two ideas, right? Um, and that makes it very difficult to exist anywhere at all. Um, so that's something that I write about a lot in my writing, um, the idea of like fearing um, death here, not being able to go home because we fear death there, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm gonna read five poems for y'all about those topics. This first one is called Paranoia. I've seen my lifeless body. It has its own name that sounds nothing like mine. It lives in the bathroom stall of some restaurant, bloody and left behind. 
at the ditch down the street from the university, rain falling on its silence, at the bottom of a stairwell somewhere, sickness finally released from the bruised skin. I imagine my funeral, my mother sobbing herself into an ocean and a shipwreck in the place of my father. Behind them, the echoes from all the people who want me dead, the news anchor calling for a Muslim genocide, the white people burning down all of our mosques, the thousands in Dresden, Paris, Tel Aviv, Austin, marching for my extermination. Now wouldn't that be a spectacle, a parade in the place of a burial? I've been trying to drown out their voices, but if these people want me dead, they can have this body. I am exhausted. The sky in its perpetual darkness is whispering me into the afterlife, convincing me that every pair of cowboy boots comes with a switchblade to the throat, that every frat boy can smell my blood, that every white person who hears my name wants to tear it from my teeth, all of the language meant to burn me alive, molding into static, projecting itself across the walls of every room I enter, as if I'm watching the movie of my own execution over and over and screaming without making a sound. I wake up to the cold jaws of a magnum to the back of my head, try to convince myself that this fear is irrational. No one cares enough about me to pull the trigger, but the rotting pile of my dead brothers and sisters across the diaspora is pleading that I run and never turn back. Sometimes you have to accept the paranoia if you want to avoid the sacrifice. The day I stop being afraid might be the day my body is forsaken of the name it clings to, becomes lifeless until I beg for music to be stapled to my tongue, until I take all the fire gnawing at my skin, all the television static wrenching my body apart, all of the, all of the combat boots marching at my front door, all the gunfire carving my future into cracked tombstones, take all of it and turn it into an orchestra of light, a symphony loud enough to swallow all the torches and make my name, make my name into a song, a song that sounds like a burning piano playing itself in the middle of an empty ballroom the kind that's been on fire for as long as it can remember. <clears throat> One, picture me as a child, fat, spectacled, dirt-skinned, picture my mouth, talking too loud of where I come from, picture Muslim, Arab, child of immigrants. Picture first day of sixth grade, picture my middle school, gallon of whole milk, hornet's nest, Labyrinth of Ghouls, picture 2007, War on Terror, post 9-11, picture me, a haunted target. I walk to the cafeteria, I dodge rocks thrown by the white boys and turn around lunchless. I ride the school bus home, taste the windows grime as my face is slammed into it, picture me walking to the library alone, group of children following, picture me running, cornered, quivering, picture a fist, picture my face, picture more fists, Picture my face blooming into a bloody rose. Picture a rose on fire, blood on fire, blood filled with dirt, dirty blood, dirty child. Picture this every day. Any wrong turn could lead to a child's casket and a mother crying. Picture two towers falling and every Muslim child in this country choking on the ash. It doesn't even matter if we remember the day the world cocked its shotgun towards us. We face the firing squad anyway, even if we escape. There's always a sacrifice. Two. I haven't stepped foot in that school for seven years and I can still hear the screaming. Who would have thought that the suffering would end with me? A study conducted by the SPLC states two-thirds of K-12 teachers report that immigrant, Muslim, and children of immigrant students 
fear what will happen to their families after the election. Called it the Trump effect. The study says a fifth grader told a Muslim student he supports Trump because he'll kill all the Muslims. The study says students are terrified of being sent back to their war-torn countries. The study says Muslim students are afraid microchips will be implanted in their skin. The study says what a fool you are for thinking your nightmares would end because you survived them. But I fear what the study does not say. What happens in the darkest classrooms? I close my computer. Out the window, a child's casket is lowered into the hungry earth. Ask me why I am afraid to dream, and I will tell you. One day, all the sun will be gone, and we will still be hunted. Three, I'm trying to imagine a better world for us, a world where I do not run from love because I do not fear my dead children, where I don't have nightmares of carrying their bodies at the same hallways I was tormented in. Imagine if death were the worst thing. I carry trauma like a crown of thorns. I hope to wake up one day and not be running. I want us to be pure again. I try to imagine if the towers were not peeled open in the horizon, if the world did not shed its final skin and reveal its sickness. But imagination is impossible in the face of the bullet. All I have is this desperate prayer. Please, I'm begging you, protect the children. I was lucky to crawl out of this swarm alive. My mother cannot look at me without wanting to cry, and I can't really blame her. So many of our mothers are trying to forget what they ran from, and so many of our mothers are still running. She used to scold me when I wouldn't speak in Arabic. Now she flinches when I speak of a plane ticket back home. My mouth stutters when choosing between the Arabic words for homeland and country. All that comes from my mother's mouth is graveyard. My mother hears my rage and sees graveyard. My mother sees my darker skin and feels graveyard. My mother feels me reach my hands across the Atlantic as her hands pull the first patch of dirt from the soil. The Arabic word for graveyard is matbara, from the root abr, meaning to bury. In Lebanon, mothers will say, burni, you bury me to their children, as a term of endearment. You bury me with your love. Ummi, I want to shower you with good things, but like matter, joy cannot be created wistfully. The world is a horrifying tunnel, and we are always afraid. I cannot promise you that you will not have to bury me, but I can promise. When you scream my name with delight every time I come home, the law of conservation is worthless, and there's not a single thing we cannot unearth. <laughs> Death speaks to the child of the immigrant. Did your mother and father really think that leaving would keep you safe from me. How foolish of them to think I can't drain the light from all of your sanctuaries. When your mother was 12, she watched two people murdered outside her home. When your father was 15, he cleared the road for Syrian convoys as Israeli jets painted the sky black with shrapnel. My withered hands clenched around their throats, mosaic of blood across my mouth from the sweet ceremony of war. This world does not leave me hungry, but I am never satisfied. Not until my jagged teeth have bits of you stuck between them. You Arabs all look the same to me. Taste the same too. Sweat the same fear. Bleed the same despair. And isn't that the purest kind of ancestry? A lineage of burials familiar enough to become its own culture.
When we were first introduced, blowholes dragged your eight-year-old eyes across the walls of downtown Beirut. You watched your people's blood spilling from their scars until you were neck deep in your ancestors' sacrifice, and you've been washing your hands ever since, haven't you? You've been scrubbing them hard enough to rip the brown right off the skin as if I can't see straight through that ungodly color, as if I couldn't find you anywhere, as if I'm not waiting for you to come home so I can claw the light from your body, make you into another offering. How proud you must be, born to a family that was lucky enough to make it out alive, but I do not forgive. I do not forget. I'm always hungry. I'm always drinking someone else's blood that tastes just like yours, and it's never tasted better. A few summers ago, I took a couple thousand Palestinians that look just like your mother, and your father, and your brothers, and you. Do you remember that? Do you remember how little you ate that month? Do you remember how every time you blinked, the back of your eyelids replayed the image of the missiles dazzling the way into the hospitals? You haven't slept the same since, but those are fireworks to me. That's a celebration in my eyes. Each gunshot, a pop of champagne. Each gut-wrenching scream, a round of applause. Each explosion, confetti. Each war, a family reunion. Every single catastrophe is my birthday. I'm reborn from every life you give me, and I'm waiting for you to come home. Don't you dare show your face on this side of the earth again, because I'll turn you into one of those buildings. I'll fill your body with bullets. I'll drink the blood from your mouth. I'll sit front row at your funeral. I'll turn you into an artifact. I'll laugh so loud the earth splits itself open just to make room for your body. Um, this is my last poem. Um, thank you for, for coming. And thank you to Ravi for allowing me to come out here. This is like the first, the second time I've like ever performed to a group of like mostly out of people, which is nice. Um, because normally, I mean, people like will like it, but they don't, they don't get it, you know? Um, so yeah, so thank you to everyone for coming and to Robbie for uh, inviting me out here. And then, so I just want to do a quick note about this poem. Um, so all the things I touched on, all those topics, etc., make it very difficult to like harness joy as an Arab and as a Muslim person, as like a, as like a brown person. Um, it's really difficult. Um, and I often find myself asking, like, what are, like, what do I like about being Arab? And sometimes it's really hard to, like, make a list of those things because I'm so consumed by the rhetoric and by the news and all these things. Um, and sometimes I convince myself that it's, it's impossible for me to harness joy as an Arab person. Um, if anyone else feels like that, I want to let you know that that's a lie. Um, and we always need to be making sure that we t remind ourselves that that's not true. So this is a poem about a moment um, of joy. Um, and this poem and the poem I just read were written in the same workshop. This is a response um, to death in my voice. It is difficult for me to write about joy because of the way death demands my attention, forces my gaze into his ancient eyes, withdraws all the, funny, honey, withdraws all the honey from my tongue, and leaves me full of the oldest kind of sickness. But today, as the 12 of us sit at this dining room table met only to seat four, we are released back into the wild paradise of our survival by the smell of my grandmother's cooking. I turn my head away from death and his plagued existence. I take the sweetness back and feel it pulse through my skin until I am glowing and bursting and home. Finally, I look to my cousins. I look to my father. I look to my brother. I look to my grandmother. I look to my three great aunts who I met for the first time this afternoon and marvel at how their unfiltered malice produced the same laugh as my six-year-old cousin, and that is our soundtrack. And we do not listen to the newscast clawing its way out of the living room because the only story for today is this rice, and this wada anab, and this shurbat adas, 
And if we have these things, we will always have the steadiness our heartbeats find when they are in the same room together. We are fearless. We are not the weight inside the casket. We are not the home for the bullet. We are not the children of martyrs. We are the laughter loud enough to steal the thunder's glory. And in this moment, the rubble is just rubble and the bullets are just bullets. And death is so jealous of our love that he takes more and more of us by the minute. But the dead are not dead. They're living in the spaces between these tired fingers. We close our fists and our loved ones are back home and death is a distant memory begging to be remembered. Today, we do not see death. We see the light erupting from each other's unbreakable spirit the way the sun erupts from the Mediterranean every single morning. And my God, aren't us Arabs unstoppable? And my God, aren't us Arabs free? And my God, aren't us Arabs staying that way? And my God, isn't this holiness exactly what us Arabs deserve? Thank you. We're going to close with a reading by Lauren Camp. I am so grateful for everybody's stories. And um, my story um, is the story of my father. So it's, um, my father was born in Baghdad, lived there until he was 15, and then came to the U.S. I think I'll start with two poems, and then I'll tell you a little more. Born in the palms, in a time ripe with witness, in a brick house, in the narrow city, in the tender grass. The first boy. He made his father Abu Haskel, and though he guarded his pride, it shone when his family called him Ibn Abraham. His life was fixed with silver cups, with eastern walls, with wool, with silk and flourish. A prince of the city, he moved through the sky, through the wide eye of sun and the thrust of tough voices to the pigment of river where he sat with his cousins eating fish and looking over the season of green, the stone bridge, the bone-white boats, and the long, voluble course of the water. My father said nothing about his childhood. So everything in this book, except for maybe three small phrases, comes from research, um, from setting the book aside and saying, I can't do this because I'm telling the story of my father and finally from saying, okay, I'll do this. Um, so um, before I get back to my, my dad, um, here's a poem about, well, the, po the book is called 100 Hungers, and it is hunger for everything, hunger for food, for family, for connection, for knowledge, for understanding a place I've never been to, for understanding his experience of a place he was. Um, so before I go back to that, here is a poem about tea, called Tea Hours. Under your tall roof, let water turn to triangles and pockets in the kettle. Time must slow to the near bubble, the folding of liquid 
on liquid. Don't follow the long hand of a wooden clock. Don't count. Let it be morning, then after. Let dark leaves spread and soften. This is the fact. Steep until two ravens bracket the post at the backyard, forming a sentence. Until the teapot is scented with earth and green cardamom, orange and anise. Until sugar embroiders the base of the glass. Let it have clarity. Let it be bitter. Until two more things or eight ways. Until cup after cup. So, um, I was raised before anyone knew where Iraq was, which made my childhood relatively easy, I think. Um, And when we entered, when my two countries went to war, uh, everybody asked me suddenly how my father felt about it. So here is my answer. Why dad doesn't pay attention to Iraq anymore? You can all stop asking about the Abu Ghraib torture and how he felt when the pictures were published of men in long hoods. He was traveling the white rim of traffic from New York to the city of brotherly love, stopping for donuts, cream-filled. When Hussein's statue fell, he was up in his condo, organizing pencils, most with erasers. His radio tuned to Beethoven's sixth or some college football. Collateral damage, snipers, missiles, hostile attention. He's not watching. His black shadows are inverted. His horizons a gold minaret the zip and clatter of dust, a river branched under a bridge then cut from the muscle of land. He sees the circumference of dates, unsaid words pile in dunes. All he wanted was some portion of yes and stay, those phrases no one could pack. The tick talks backward. His single truth was to stop reading. Letters became drifts. The longest griefs are those we never look at, in terrible gutters and columns of newsprint. Yes, in war stories, everyone dies in the end. So a lot of the book is about... um, is about my father's childhood imagined. Some of the book is about my childhood growing up with those customs and um, that I could see um, of an immigrant family in the U.S. And the other part of the book is about trying like crazy to figure out this story. So here's a poem about that called Scraps. One morning in his apartment... I slid under his bed for a fact that might have fallen in sleep, but found only piles of pressed long-sleeve shirts, 
Blue, why always blue? And a box of receipts. Since then I have not looked for more. My father shoves his words into pockets and pulls them from his wallet. When his new name smeared on the old, he was left with pieces of syllables that no longer answered. Now, he says, at the same time about death and deeper inescapable danger. His mother will never stop washing the chicken, her, her hands lifting raw skin at the faucet. She'll never stop smashing the clove, slicing the onion, never stop stewing squash until tender. My father has grown a beard. The backyard is filled with dirty snow, with scrawny shrubs. We are at Maple Avenue, eating the eggs from the white to the yellow. Um, my father came by himself at age 15. I have a feeling I'm talking to a room full of people who have come um, or whose parents have come or whose grandparents have come. And uh, again, I didn't know anything about his story. My father is alive. Um, He's silent about it. Uh, so here's, here's what I imagine was the truth of the day he came. First view of America. The plane slid down on a land divided, the unnatural floor of earth. Uncle met him, his footsteps stamped on Idlewild tile. They drove through a city affixed to the sky where buildings rose higher than 100 Sedra Bitamur. Dad's eyes must have extended. It was October, a sheet of leaves. The pigment of fire flittered on glass. His new world began in a hollow car, and on Maple Avenue his mother offered a whole fish on a plate in curdled oil. He was suddenly tired. He was thrown to it, this land, soft and uncertain, chicken bones and onion skins in a pot on a stove. In Baghdad, he left a single wrinkle in his room, but packed his accent and passport. He dressed for a journey, drank a cup of belief in the airport, moved through doorways. In 1941, one uncle was murdered. The family waited nine years, then boarded a plane. I'm going to read two more poems. Um, this next one is about the very thing that I've been thinking for the last couple of days, which is how jealous I am of those of you that carry the language in your bodies that I don't have. I don't speak Arabic, as this poem will tell you. Um, my father didn't teach his children, my mother wasn't Arabic, and we didn't ask to be taught. So I feel quite certain I'm gonna say all these words wrong, but I'm gonna give it my best. I am practicing now. I am practicing now turning sleeves and glands of your language through the back of my throat and kissing black edges, 
So many syllables saturated with flavors of mourning. The sky is clear again today. Nina Awadim, we are human. Long shadows fall against windows. No spots, no secret intentions. El An, I say, and now means the name of this country. Now is where you try again. Find days on either side, straight and without betrayal. When you were in the old country, in the inventory of cousins, each cluster of hours simmered from minutes. Now, your real language, tongued by chance, writhes and rises from you. A reliance on the throat, the region wet and thick. Such wreckage. To my ear, the rough places are beautiful. Nourishing. Say anything. Never stop saying anything. Those fugitive words are all surface and passage, all fraction, animal fragment and brutal. I half expect what doesn't come. Asa, chosen, garden. Which of these is right? You never tell me. But when you speak it, your face lifts. Nina Awadim. Suddenly I want the bulges and bulk. I want to eat one by one the rectangular sounds. You taught me tamarhinde, tamarind, tamarind, my short lesson in Arabic. Swirling the pen right to left on a napkin in a plastic booth at McDonald's. Anyone looking at our particular posture that day would know the sticky brown pulp of the word didn't interest me. But now I believe I was waiting. Uthran, Uthran, Ani ma'afam, Ana ma'at kalam arabi. I'm sorry, I don't understand. I don't speak Arabic. There are plenty of days I cannot undress and days of helicopters and clatter, acid and tenderness. Words don't stick right. They emerge mournful and curled as if stirred in the wrong pot. So what I see in my father And what I see in so many people in this room is how hard it is to belong to one country. Um, how even if you leave a country, you bring it with you. I guess I should just talk about my father, but, um, but that is what I see in him, that he is, he is not of this country and he's no longer strictly of his country. And it's all very confused and makes for a very uh, complicated um, characterization um, and a difficult ability for him to just see what's, uh, what's in front but without seeing and taking with him, bringing with him what's behind. So I'm going to end with this and thank you, Rawi and Mizna and everybody for um, putting your stories in me and letting me go home with them.
This is called Peripheral Vision. A bird enters Dad's condo through an open screen. It flies toward his TV, and Dad sees a darter on the silt of the river, kingfisher, wagtail. A string of pigeon feathers follows. Outside, it is morning. He is almost alone. He tries to refocus, sees a sky the color of dimes overlapping the asphalt. No, a man selling fresh fish and fat hanks of a cow. The bird whirls. Wet air crawls from the shore, and when he reaches out, the water is warm. Next week will be 62 years, 3,224 Sabbaths. Under the table is his wall and the chair. He started over, seldom centered. The boy grew a man, the man grew a beard, then three children. America has yeasty clouds, Dad notices again. The furniture is brown. Parts of him are blank. He flew through the clear door of leaving. Nice boy. He left the nest in short pants, ghost-eyed and autumn, and traveled in dusk, the plea of the desert revolving away, but always a trace in his throat. Thank you. listening to Business Stream. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to receive new content coming soon. We also ask that you consider leaving a review or rating us. Your ratings can help us grow our audience and your feedback will help us improve as we move forward. We'd like to thank Daniel Lurvie for capturing this audio and Bao Fee of the Loft Literary Center for his help as well. We are immensely grateful to Ali El Abadi for helping to edit this audio and to the project coordinator for the Rawi and Mizna Lit Gathering, Sonia Ali, for helping to make this podcast and the gathering happen. Additionally, we would like to thank Khaldun Saman, the drummer featured in our theme music. If you're interested in learning to play the drum, you can learn from Khaldun himself through Mizna's drumming classes, which resume in September. Find out more about Mizna, our journal, our other programming, and this podcast at Mizna.org and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Sarah Dillard, Mizna Streams producer. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.